Welcome, everyone. So good to have all of you at all of our churches this morning, Blountstown, Chipley, and Mariana. Um, as we get started today, I want you to think about the weight and the longing that were in the lyrics of that last song that we just sang. Long lay the world in sin and error pining. That's pretty incredible. You know why those, song, those lyrics, long lay the world in sin and error pining, are so powerful? Is because they ask a question. They ask a question that many of us have asked, and that is, what, what do you do when everything around you is falling apart, when it feels like that God is nowhere to be found? Like, what do you do when you feel like your career or your family or your world is falling apart and God seems absent? I mean, it is a question that many of us have asked, and it's not a new question. So today, as, as we celebrate and reflect on what Christmas means, we're going to spend a few moments looking at a story of a woman who asked the question, what do you do when it feels like that God isn't here? It's a story of a woman whose life was filled with trouble and filled with tragedy. It's a story of a family who had every reason to believe that God had abandoned them. It's a story that I think is going to hit really close to home to many of us because our stories oftentimes seem to run in a similar path. But first, if you haven't been with us for the past few weeks, I want to give you a little bit of context of this story today. I want you to think about this statement in light of Christmas, and we've said this over the last few weeks, and that is history is the story of God. It is his story moving and proving his love for you and for me. So Christmas is a reminder that God isn't distant or disinterested. It isn't that he just set everything in motion and then went his own way and forgot about us. No, God has been actively participating in history. It is his story. And God has been moving in history for one overarching purpose, and that is to prove his love to us. So he's been trying to help us not only see who he is, but how he feels about us. Now, to help us understand God's redeeming love and his redeeming grace, we began about four weeks ago with a conversation that was just a tragic, heartbreaking story that summarized what the nation of Israel had went through for 100 or 330 years between the time when their leader Joshua died and their first king Saul took the throne. And during that time, the nation was supposed to follow God's leadership. God had set them up so he would be their invisible king. It was a theocracy. So they had these human judges who were set in place to help serve and under, help them understand what God's command was, what God was saying to them. And the problem was they were a lot like us, the Jewish nation at that time. They were a lot like us. They didn't like anybody to tell them what to do. They didn't want to be told what to do. In fact, there's something in all of us that wants to do what we want, when we want, with whomever we want, as long as it doesn't hurt anybody. So that was the mentality of Israel during this 330-year period. And the last sentence in the historical record that we call the book of Judges, it sums up this period well. It says this in Judges 21, verse 25. In those days, there was no king in Israel, and everyone did what was right in his own eyes. So there was no authority that people respected or heeded. Everybody, they decided for themselves what was truth. Everybody formed their own opinion of what their truth was. Your truth is your truth. My truth is my truth. They did what they wanted with whom they wanted. And if we're honest, I think we'd all have to admit there's a little bit of that attitude in you and there's a little bit of that attitude in me. 
The problem is, is when you live this way, you miss the extraordinary life and the joy and the happiness and peace that God created you to experience. And that is exactly what was happening to the nation of Israel. But here's what's so amazing. God decided that he was going to use the nation of Israel whether they wanted to follow him or not. It was like he said, you can either work with me or you can watch me work. But either way, I'm going to fulfill my purpose and I'm going to keep my promise to this world. So in spite of the fact that the nation of Israel had abandoned God and in spite of the fact that they felt like God had abandoned them because that's what happens whenever you abandon God, you feel like God has abandoned you. God kept working in this, in and through this nation in the middle of this really dark period of history when everybody was doing what was right in their own eyes. God was not absent. No, the opposite was true. He was extremely active, and as you're going to see today, he was actually preparing and decorating for Christmas. It's an amazing story. It's a time that was controlled by chaos in the nation of Israel. In a time when the Jewish people had really given up on God and they thought God was nowhere to be found, God was setting the table, and he was preparing for the arrival of his son, Jesus. And he uses three very fascinating people to prepare the way. He used a, a Jewish woman who was so angry and so bitter toward God that she accused God of abandoning her. He used a Moabite woman who had grown up knowing nothing about God. He used a Jewish man who, in spite of all the chaos and the rebellion in the land of Israel, never gave up on believing and following God. So God uses these three people to set the stage for the Christmas event that we're celebrating today and tomorrow. Now, their story is found in this short, ancient Old Testament document we call the book of Ruth. So if you have your Bibles, you want to follow along there, you can go to Ruth. Ruth's story, it happens in the middle of this 330-year period that we know as the Judges, and it's like the one bright spot. It's the one flicker of light in the middle of darkness and a very silent night. Here's how the story begins. Ruth chapter 1, verse 1. In the day when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. So things aren't going well. And what this famine did, it, it gave the people of Israel one more reason to believe that God had abandoned them. So what happened? So a man from Bethlehem in Judea, that sounds familiar because it's the very town where Jesus would eventually, eventually be born. So what did he do? Together with his wife and his two sons, they went to live for a while in the country of Moab. Now, the Moab people, where did they come from? Well, the Moabites, they started from Lot and his oldest daughter through an incestuous relationship. It's just an amazing story of God's redeeming grace, as we're going to see a little bit later on. So Moab was the country just east of Israel on the other side of the Dead Sea. And of course, the Jewish people really looked down on the Moabites because of how they got started. Now, notice what happens next. <clears throat> the man's name was Elimelech. His wife's name was Naomi. And the names of his two sons were Malan and Kilion. So Elimelech and Naomi, they take their sons and they move to Moab and there's, because there's just not enough food for them to survive um, in, the, in the land of Israel. Well, eventually, both sons, they marry Moabite women. And then everything begins to start unraveling. First of all, 
Limelech, he dies. And then about 10 years later, both of Naomi's sons, they die. So now it's just Naomi, and she's got two Moabite daughter-in-laws, right? So Naomi, she tells her daughter-in-law, she says, you know, there's no point in me staying here. I have no one to support me. I have no family here. God has cursed me. God is against me. I'm going to go back to Bethlehem, but you stay here. It's just way too dangerous for you to come with me to Israel. You're going to be foreign women in a land where you're going to have no protection. And the nation of Israel, they don't look favorably on on your your nation anyhow, your people. So she says, stay here, remarry, enjoy your life. Don't get dragged down by my life. And one of her daughter-in-laws does that. The other one refused to stay in Moab. And her name is Ruth. She insisted, I'm not going to abandon you, Naomi. In spite of the danger, this is what she tells Naomi in verse 16. Where you go, I will go. And where you stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people. And your God, my God. Where you die, I will die. And there, I will be buried. So this is like one of the most courageous, selfless, you might even say an irrational kind of loyalty. So Naomi and Ruth, they survived the trip back to Bethlehem. And when they get there, the people are absolutely stunned because Naomi's been gone for so long. And they start asking, is that you, Naomi? And here's how she responds in verse 20. She says, don't call me Naomi. Call me Mara. Why Mara? Because Mara means bitter. She says, call me bitter. Why does she say that? Here's what she goes on to say. Because the Almighty has made my life very bitter. I went away full, but the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi? The Lord has afflicted me. The Almighty One has brought misfortune upon me. Literally, it's all God's fault. I'm done with Him. I've lost hope in Him because He's abandoned me. He's not listening to my prayers. He's not paying attention to my life. God literally doesn't care about me. Basically, she's saying, if he cared about me, none of this stuff would have happened with my husband and with my sons. And in a way, Naomi's attitude and perspective are really kind of like a microcosm of the entire nation of Israel feeling and their actions at that time. And for many of you, you might even be feeling the same way, that God is so silent And God is so absent. But in the very moment when Naomi thought that God had abandoned her, God had actually placed her in the epicenter of his activity. She could not see it. But here's what happened. Once Naomi and Ruth, they get back to Bethlehem, they had no way to feed themselves or support themselves. So Ruth, she does one of the most humiliating things that a person can think of doing. She goes out into the barley field because it's time for the barley harvest. And she goes out to the fields early in the morning and she starts picking up the leftovers that the farmers did not pick up whenever they harvested. And it was just a real sign of poverty, of being down and out. It was just a real humiliating kind of thing. But she realizes if I can gather enough barley every day, it'll keep me and Naomi alive. Well, it just so happened that the field that she picked belongs to a man by the name of Boaz. And Boaz, he heard about the Moabite woman, this Moabite woman named Ruth, who's risked everything for Naomi. And so when he discovers Ruth in his field, he calls for her, and this is what he tells her. He says, I've been told all about what you've done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband, how you left your father and mother and your homeland, and you came to live with a people you did not know before. 
And here's the thing he says next. And this is basically, he's, he's making a prophetic statement, doesn't even realize it. He says, may the Lord repay you for what you've done. May you be richly rewarded by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. So Boaz is saying, listen, in spite of what most of the people in my nation believe, I am still confident that God is active. There is a God who honors those that is faithful and obedience. I believe there's a God who rewards those who do what is right. So Boaz is saying to Ruth, he says, I'm sure God sees you and I know God is gonna be with you. And then he tells Ruth, he says, you just stay in the fields every day and you take as much barley as you want. Well, to make a long story short, time passes and Boaz ends up making the decision to marry Ruth. Now you gotta understand, him marrying Ruth is not an expedient or convenient kind of decision because by marrying Ruth, he puts his whole fortune at risk because now his fortune is connected with a family of foreigners who have a claim to his wealth but he respects Ruth so much that he's willing to put everything he has on the line to marry her and provide for her. And you know what? That could be the end of the story. And you go, oh, that would be a happy love story. But that's not the end of the story. See, <clears throat> Boaz and Ruth, they have a son whom they name Obed. And Naomi, the woman who was so bitter and so sure that God had abandoned her, she gets to hold in her arms a grandson that she thought that she would never see. And then Obed, he grows up and he has a son named Jesse. And you can follow this in Matthew chapter one in the genealogy of Jesus. And Jesus, or Jesse, excuse me, Jesse grows up and he has a son named David. And David is that David who becomes Israel's second king and arguably the greatest king that they had the same David who God promised that from his line one day the Messiah would come from his family. And sure enough, David has a son who has a son and 25 pregnancies later, Matthew writes that Jesus was born. And I don't want you to miss this. It's a story of God's redeeming grace because who would have thought that God would have used a woman whose life seemed abandoned by God and her daughter-in-law, who was from the Moabites, whose history started from this incestuous relationship. And now they're all in the genealogy of Jesus. So just when Neoma and just when so many of the Jewish people believed that God had left them, just when they thought that God had abandoned them, he was the most active among them. He was preparing for and he was decorating for Christmas through the life of Neoma, Boaz, and Ruth. Now here's what's gonna happen as you read the Christmas story tomorrow. You're gonna discover this. When Mary had her child, no one believed that this was an ordinary child. I mean, the shepherds who showed up at the the stable where the baby was born, was directed there by an angel and was said, oh, he's a savior. He's the Messiah. He's the one you're waiting for. So they didn't show up thinking, oh, this is just an ordinary baby. No, they believed he's the savior. He's the Messiah. 
the wise men who came in Matthew chapter 2, verse 2. This is what it says. They said, where is the one who's been born king of the Jews? We saw his star when it rose, and we have come to worship him. I mean, these wise men, they were convinced that this was much more than a baby. This was a king who was worthy of worship. See, King Herod, he believed this baby was a king, and he did everything he could to kill him. And sure enough, Jesus grew up, and he proved that he was exactly who he said that he was. He was a king, but he was not a king like the people were used to serving. No, he was a king who came to reverse the order of everything. He was a king who flipped his power He flipped it upside down and he leveraged it for the powerless. He was a king who didn't ask his people to die for him. No, he died for his people. He's the king who invites you and me to have a relationship with him, to join his family, to pursue a life of greater purpose together with him. And here's the thing, in a single decision, you can become part of the story and the family of Jesus the king who reversed the order of everything. With a single decision, you can have a personal relationship with Jesus. In a single decision, you can be forever forgiven and be freed up to live the way that God created you to live and have the life that God created you to have. That's what his redeeming grace does. And you don't have to go through life asking, like, what do I do and where is God and am I alone and what's my meaning and what's my purpose? I mean, even if or when it feels like that God is after, you can know this. He is actively involved and he wants to have a relationship with you. Everything that is going on in your life, it is setting you up for a relationship with Jesus. And so as we close out our conversation together today, I want you to consider doing something maybe some of you have never done before. Instead of doing what you want to do, when you want to do it, with whom you want, as long as it doesn't hurt anybody, Would you instead recognize Jesus as the king who's worth following, the king who will redeem your life through his redeeming grace? Would you accept his forgiveness and his invitation to be part of his family? Would you open up your life to his unconditional love, his acceptance, and his leadership in your life? Would you come back to the king who gave everything for you? See, like any other king or any other leader, you need to know, God will never force you to submit to him. He invites you to submit and experience his redeeming grace. And if you want to do that for the very first time, or maybe you you want to come back because you've been running for a long time. All of our campuses, I'm asking all of you right now just to bow your heads, close your eyes, and open your heart to God. And would you just say this prayer in your heart to God if you've been running and want to come back or You've never received Jesus as your savior. We just say, Heavenly Father, I believe it. Jesus is the king who came to change everything. I believe that when he died, he died for me and he took my sins on himself on the cross. I accept your forgiveness for my rebellion. Open my eyes so I can see the world the way you see it. Open my eyes so I might see myself the way you see me. And then give me the wisdom and the courage to know from this day forward what it means to follow you. Thank you for forgiving me of all of my sin. And thank you for your redeeming grace. And thank you for the reminder that God used a Moabite woman, a bitter Jewish woman, and a faithful Jewish man to remind me that even when I feel like that you are silent 
and it's a really silent, dark night, you are still actively involved in redeeming my life and using the redeeming grace in my life to redeem others. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Listen, if you just prayed that prayer for the first time, we would love to celebrate that with you. And, and we'd love for you to stop by the gallery, the lobby, and let our team know that on your way out. But before you go today, the band at each of our campuses, they're gonna lead us in a song to close us out, to remind us that the birth of Jesus truly is the dawn of redeeming grace. But before they do, you were given candles when you walked in the room today. If you didn't get one, as the ushers come down, you can ask for one. But after I pray, we're gonna light the candles and, and we're gonna sing the song, Silent Night. And I want you to let the light of the candles remind you that Christmas is when your heavenly father, my heavenly father, gave us the hope that we could have light in a very dark world and he has not and he cannot be overcome. No, it's a hope that burns much brighter than anything else in this world and we can hold on to it in the darkest of times because God's redeeming grace will always light your way even when you feel like he's silent. Hey, Merry Christmas to you all. Let me pray for you. Heavenly Father, I thank you for this incredible opportunity to be reminded as we begin this weekend of celebrating you coming as a baby, but not just an ordinary baby. You came as our king, a king who's worthy of our allegiance, full allegiance and full obedience. But he didn't just come as a king, he also came as a savior. And we so desperately need to be saved from ourselves. God, so many times we find ourselves in the place of Naomi and we feel like you've abandoned us and we become bitter. And God, today we ask that you remind us that you're still involved, you're still at work in our life. And God, sometimes we look at our past background and we think, how could God use me? May the story of Ruth remind us, man, God, He's got a plan for us all. And God, may we all desire to be like Boaz, that no matter how dark the night, how silent the voice of God, we're convinced, we're confident, and we'll be faithful and obedient no matter what. God, thank you for the gift of your redeeming grace, especially in those silent night seasons of our life. We thank you for this in Jesus' name. Amen.